All right, First Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to look at uh, this whole chapter this morning as we continue uh, working our way line by line through our church covenant. And our church covenant is just our, our reminder here at Corinth of what it means to be the people of God and what God has called us to do, not just in relation to Him, but also in relation to one another. And so uh, we're, we've entered into the second section of the four sections of our church covenant. We're in the second section now in the, in the second line. And, and this part of the covenant reads that we commit to praying for our church's growth. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What does it mean for us if this is part of the covenant that we have entered into with one another as members of Corinth Baptist Church? What does it mean for us to pray for our church's growth. Now, if you're not a member of our church this morning, you may think, well, this doesn't really apply to me. Why am I even here? I hope you're going to see there's a lot in 1 Thessalonians 1 this morning that applies to you, even if you're not a member of our church. But but I want to speak specifically to members of Corinth Baptist Church this morning as we think about what it means to fulfill this portion of our covenant to pray for our church's Growth, and so that's what we'll be talking about this morning. I want to start out with a quote from Mark Dever, Pastor Mark Dever, pastors in uh, Washington D.C. He said, "A healthy church has a pervasive concern with church growth. This is something we should be concerned about, not simply growing in numbers, but growing members." Some today seem to think that one can be a baby Christian. For a whole lifetime, growth is seen to be an optional extra for particularly zealous disciples. But be very careful about taking that line of thought. Growth is a sign of life. I want to read that again because I think that's so true. By God's design, growth is a sign of life. Growing trees are living trees. Growing animals are living animals. When something stops growing, it dies. And that's by God's design. So as we're thinking about praying this morning for church growth, we're really talking about praying for the very life of our church. And what does that look like? That's what we'll be seeing today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. John Stott wrote about this passage of Scripture, and he, and he helps us to understand some of the key elements that we're going to see today. And so I wanted to share this with you as well. Pastor John Stott said, what is of particular interest in this particular chapter, because it applies to Christian communities in every age and place, so this applies to us, is the interaction which the apostle portrays between the church and the gospel. That's the key thing in this chapter that we want to see is, is the interaction between the church and the gospel. Paul shows us how the church, how the gospel creates the church and how the church spreads the gospel. How the gospel shapes the church as the church seeks to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And so I would say to us this morning, just as a basic idea that we're going to look at today, that as we think about praying for our church's growth, what we are really praying for is our church's interaction with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And I've said to us many times from this pulpit, the gospel is not just something that saves us. The gospel is also that which sanctifies us and prepares us for the glory that God is preparing for us in our heavenly home and in that new heavens and new earth that he has created for us to dwell in forever. So this this is a particular interest to us because it's speaking to us about our eternal destiny. As followers of Jesus Christ. And so let's talk about what it looks like this morning to pray for church growth. What are we praying for? If we are going to fulfill this part of our covenant, I'm going to lay before you in our outline this morning what I think is a great prayer list directly out of First Thessalonians 1. This is our prayer list if we're going to pray for our church's growth. First of all, as we pray for our church's growth, we're praying for growth in God-given graces. And again, you can feel free to follow along on the outline there. And we're going to use this as a prayer list as we finish this morning. But we want to pray, first off, for growth in God-given graces. And that's what we see in those first three verses there. He begins to speak to the church at Thessalonica, a church with which Paul was acquainted through his second missionary journey. And his companions, here he's called Silvanus, but that's also known as Silas and Timothy. These men had been with him as he began the ministry in Thessalonica, one of the most prominent cities in that part of the world and still a prominent city today. It's one of the few biblical cities that still exist in the world today. You can still go visit modern day Thessalonica in the country of Greece today. It's it's second only to the city of Athens in population. And and he's writing here to these Thessalonian believers and he's wanting them to understand how he is praying for them so that they might know as we might know how we can then pray for our church. So he begins by laying out these God-given graces. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. As he'll say at the end of this book, praying without ceasing. What is he praying for? Remembering before our God and Father, notice these three things, your work of faith, that's the first one, your labor of love, that's the second one, and your steadfastness of hope. And each and every one of these is in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope that are all in relation to their their relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that he's praying for them is that they would have, as we would desire to have, a functioning faith. A faith that works this is not just a a faith that we set up on the shelf monday through friday and then we remind ourselves on saturday night oh yeah i need to pick my faith up off the shelf and bring it to church on sunday morning no this is a a faith that's lived out in our daily lives that's what he's praying for them when he prays for their works of faith a functional faith that, that would he would pray that would abound in the church. It's what James was talking about in James chapter 2 when he said, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. 
No, that's the implied answer that James is is going for there. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The answer is, it's no good. They're not going to be able to eat your words. They're not going to be able to clothe themselves in your admonitions. It's got to get practical. So then, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead faith. It's useless. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And then James says, well then show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, James wants us to help to understand very clearly here, we do not want to get this cart before the horse. He is not talking about doing good works in order to earn the favor of God. That's not what he's talking about. That is clarified by Ephesians chapter 2. If that's a wrestling you have, go read Ephesians 2, where Paul clearly says we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. But what James is helping us to to see here and to understand is that a real saving faith will be accompanied by works that serve as evidence of that faith and its reality. It's like a tree and its fruit. How do you identify the apple tree? It's by the apples that are being born on that tree or the orange tree. It's by the oranges that are being born on that tree. And in the same way in the Christian life, how do we know if our faith is is real? It's by the fruit that's born out of that faith. That's the kind of works that James is talking about here. It's not working in order to earn our salvation. It's working as a result of having been saved by the grace of God in jesus christ and he's encouraging the thessalonians in that kind of a faith a functional working faith but he also prays in line with that faith that they would participate in labors of love literally that a a laboring love would rebound between them That there would be acts of love that would take place in the body. These labors of love. And that word labor there in the Greek is a very graphic word. It it refers to pouring out all of your energies. This is exerting yourself to the end. And, And so as we labor in love for one another, it's going to be costly. He wants us to understand this here. It's going to be a costly love. It's going to cost us some sweat equity. It's going to cost us some resources. It's going to cost us time and energy in order to do these labors of love for one another. It's what First Peter 4 reminds us of. Above all, brothers and sisters, keep loving one another earnestly, sincerely, wholeheartedly striving after this kind of love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And so we see this call that we would pray that these labors of love would rebound in our relationships with one another. And thirdly this morning, we're praying that a hearty hope may resound within us. So faith and love and now this third grace of hope. 
this hope in the coming king, this hope in Jesus return is what he's praying. This will resound in our hearts that we might be faithful in the present moment. I think one of the biggest questions for the church right now in the United States of America is will we continue to be faithful in the present moment and in the moments that are about to come? You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, I don't know what all's coming down the line, but unless our country sees gigantic revival and a resurgence of biblical faith, we are headed down a path of great destruction. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because you look at history and you see it. Over and over again, every great nation that has ever existed on this planet that has turned away from the one true and living God has, has sacrificed biblical principles in terms of man's theories and ideas. Every one of those nations has faced destruction. And in comparison with so many of those great nations, we are still a baby in terms of the history of our country. We're only a couple hundred years old. The Roman Empire from beginning to end was nearly a thousand years. The Assyrians lasted longer than us than we've had so, so, so far. The Babylonians lasted longer than we have so far. And, and we act as if we're some kind of eternal nation just because we have on our coins still to this day one nation under God. But let's remind ourselves under God means under submission to God and his revealed word. And the farther we move from that as a nation, the more God's people are called upon not just to grumble and complain, in fact, not to grumble and complain, but to pray. And what are we praying for? We're praying that faith may abound. A living and abiding faith. We're praying that true biblical love may abound among us. And we're praying that this kind of a hearty hope in our coming king would resound within our hearts. This is what will keep us faithful. And so 1 Corinthians 13, defining love for us, ends with these words. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. They remain, they dwell with us. These three, but the greatest of these is love. By the way, it's an interesting study. If you want to do a Bible study this week about the, where you see faith, hope, and love together in the scriptures, there's about a dozen places in the New Testament where those three graces are grouped together because the Lord is wanting us to keep these things primary among us. And so let's pray to that end. So we pray for God-given grace. The second on our prayer list this morning, as we pray for the growth of our church, is we pray for growth in gospel-focused proclamation. We need to be praying for the preaching of the gospel in our day. And, and not just in our church. But in churches all across the land where, as I've shared in recent weeks, there is such a propensity in the current moment for churches to abandon the preaching of the gospel in favor of proclaiming man's theories about what will fix the problems of the current moment. And we're seeing this over and over again in so many faithful leaders abandoning the gospel 
I heard a pastor just this week, a man that I listened to for several years. I love to listen to his preaching, but I heard from his own lips him saying in relation to the racial issues that our country is facing, that just preaching the gospel was insufficient for dealing with the racial tensions in our country. And I want to say to us, church, when we start going down those roads, we are going into dangerous territory. Because we're saying then that God doesn't really have the solution, that we're the ones that have the solution for the problems of our day. That is dangerous thinking. I want to say to us once again today, the gospel is fully sufficient for the things that we are facing in our current moment. It has always been and will always be because the all-knowing God knows what we need. And he has given us this sufficient word. And so we pray for the preaching of the gospel. What are we talking about? First of all, it requires the preaching of the scriptures. Again, not a mixture of man's ideas and and God's ideas. We're talking about we want to know the mind of God, the heart of God. We want to know the will of God. And those things come to us through the word of God. You don't need to hear this preacher's ideas on Sunday morning. You need to hear what God has said. You you don't need to hear my theories. You you don't need to hear uh, my assumptions. You, You don't need to hear my way of fixing things. You need to hear what God has spoken. That's why we run to the scriptures week after week. And I pray for you, it's day after day. As as Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Folks, the kind of preaching that I'm talking about right now is, is perceived by so many to be out of season. Well, that may have worked 50 years ago. But we need something better today. People won't pay attention to just the expository preaching of the word of God. We, we need to have other things that will draw them in, that will entertain them, that will, that will bring them to the Lord. We need these other theories and these other thoughts because that's what's appealing to people today. The more we try to itch the ears of those who are lost and dying, the less they will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given means by which men might be saved. And the faith that saves comes from hearing the word of Christ. It's always been that way. And when we start changing these things in order to accommodate our culture, we are abandoning the faith that saves and we are directing people toward an eternal hell. See, pastor, that sounds a little harsh. We need to hear a little harshness today that we might be awakened to the reality of what's happening in churches. And I'm not talking about in New York City or even in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm talking about in our own community today. I'm vividly aware of pastors that are abandoning the gospel today in favor of a pragmatic approach to ministry. And it grieves me. And if I were really honest with you today, I would also say and it angers me. Because we are watching them lead people down a path that will not lead them to Jesus. We need to preach the word. 
And we need to preach the word in the power of the spirit. That's what he says to these Thessalonians. Pray that the word would be preached. But also look what he says there. He mentions the Holy Spirit two times right in the very center of this passage. Verse five. He says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He mentions the Holy Spirit right at the heart of this prayer because he wants us to be reminded of where the power comes from. The power doesn't come from the charisma of the preacher. The power doesn't come from the power of our programs. The power doesn't come from the the monies that we put into the offering boxes. The, The power doesn't come from just following a certain set of steps in order to accomplish this church growth. Well, it just a like a little recipe that we might have. We'll do this and that and this and that, and the church will grow and flourish. That's not where the power comes from. The power comes from the word of God being preached and the power of the Holy Spirit and lives being radically transformed by almighty God. And if that sounds too simplistic, maybe I've not been simplistic enough. God is the one that brings the transformation that we call church growth. He's the one that brings the dead to life. As Ephesians 6 reminds us, we're called to take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the Word of God and the Spirit of God that bring about the kind of church growth that we're talking about this morning. It's the Word of God and the Spirit of God that will radically transform your life if you will submit to the power that God has placed within these things. And so we pray for growth in God-given graces. We pray for growth in, in gospel-focused proclamation. Thirdly, this morning, we pray for growth in Christ-like leaders. And, and I know we keep coming back to this theme, but it's so necessary today that we see the, the value that's placed upon leaders in the church and the multiplication of godly leadership within the church. And so he says to them at the end of verse 5 there, he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And notice the progression. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so there's this progression that's happening here. It began with Paul and Silas and Timothy going to Thessalonica, preaching the gospel, starting that first church there. It wasn't long before they were kicked out of town by persecution. But Paul sent Timothy back to check on the Thessalonian church to see how they were doing. And Timothy comes back to report to Paul at Corinth and he says they're doing well. There's so much that's going well there. The church is flourishing. There's some issues that that Paul will address in this book, but they're minor compared to. There's so much to rejoice in what was happening in the growth of that church. And so Paul is commending that. But it all began with the faithfulness of a few men to take the gospel to a place that had not yet been heard. 
And from that place, a church was planted and that church began to flourish under the godly leadership. It says of Paul that wherever he went, that he was faithful to raise up elders, pastors in those places to lead God's church to growth in godliness. And that was flourishing in Thessalonica. And so Timothy comes to Paul and says, it's all going so well. There's a few issues along the way. It's not a a perfect picture, but it is a holy and beautiful and godly picture there. There's great things happening at Thessalonica and we can rejoice. And so what does it look like for us to pray for Christ-like leaders to abound in our church and in our churches? Well, first of all, as verse 6 would remind us, We first need men worthy of imitation. The Christian life is a life of imitation. I know that word is not liked today. Everybody wants to be unique and different. Everybody wants to be the one and only. But the Christian life is not that way. The Christian life by God's design is a life of imitation. We are called to imitate the Lord, but we are called to imitate the Lord by imitating godly men who themselves are imitating the Lord. That's the picture here. It's a picture of multiplication of imitation. And so, first of all, we need men worthy of imitation. What kind of men? Go read 1 Timothy 3. You see the description of those who are called to be pastors, those who are called to be elders, those who are called to be overseers, three synonyms of the same office, those who are called to shepherd the flock of God. And as he describes what kind of men these must be, nearly every one of the things he says are character attributes. So we need men of godly character, men worthy of imitation, And then from there, it moves on this imitation. Then in verse seven leads to gospel multiplication. So it's not just men who are worthy of imitation, but men who will fulfill second Timothy two 22, which urges those men to go find other faithful men to invest the things of the Lord in them, that they might then invest those things in others. We are here today because the early church took serious this call to multiply what they had been given. They took seriously the call to multiply godly leadership in their midst. And we're here today because they were faithful. And by the way, if you know Jesus Christ today, if you have come to God through faith in him, if you have a living relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus, it's because somebody was faithful to this work. It's because somebody was faithful to imitating Jesus and calling others to do the same. And that multiplied, and therefore we are here today. Imitation leads to multiplication. Then look at verse 8. This multiplication will eventually lead to world evangelization. The gospel going unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Look at this picture in verse 8. He says, not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia in the immediate area, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Now, this may be a little hyperbole on Paul's part, but his point is this. 
This kind of a faith that's worthy of imitation and that multiplies itself by passing the faith along to others, this kind of faith will be the kind of faith that leads to that day when every tribe and tongue and nation sees men and women and boys and girls coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the end of our story, folks. I know we're living in a day when somewhere between two and three billion people on the planet today have never heard the gospel that we're talking about this morning. They've never heard about our creator God who saw fit to rescue lost sinners like us through the cross of his son. They've never heard the gospel story. Two to three billion people on the planet today of the seven plus billion have never had any access to that gospel. But what the word of God tells us is there's coming a day when people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be gathered around one throne worshiping one king. Why? Because this process, this is the God-given process that men worthy of imitation because of their following of Jesus Christ would multiply the gospel among them through training others to know the Lord and to share the Lord. And that multiplication would eventually, will eventually lead to the evangelization of all the peoples of the world. This is God's design. The church doesn't have to manufacture this. We don't need programs to accomplish this. We need the word of God and the spirit of God and the plan of God being put into practice. That's all that is needed. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, the grounding of this. So be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The Christian life is one of imitation. By the way, who are you imitating in your following of Christ today? Finally, this morning, we pray for growth in God-given graces. We pray for growth in a gospel-focused proclamation. We pray for growth in Christ-like leaders. And the last thing on our prayer list this morning is we pray for growth in a gospel-induced response. We pray that the response of the gospel would flourish among us and we need to know what the proper response of the gospel is. Hearing about how our holy God has made a way for the rescue of rebellious sinners like us through the blood of his son poured out at the cross. Our response to that is not simply, well, that's really nice, God. We appreciate that. It's got to be more than that. Our response is is not merely an intellectual assent to say, oh yeah, that sounds about right. No, our response to the gospel is dictated by the gospel. Our response to the gospel is what I seek to, to lead us back to week after week from this pulpit. Our response is one of repentance and faith. This is the biblical response to the gospel. You see it in verse 9. That repentance is this turning from false dead idols to the living God. He says, they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
How you turn from the false gods of the Roman pantheon to serve the one true and living God. How you abandon the false worship of your day in order to engage in the true worship once for all delivered to the saints. This faith that God has given us and called us into. He says, this is what it means to repent. And it's still what it means to repent today. It's still what it means to repent, that we turn away from the false gods of our age and we turn to the one true and living God in faith. So in our day, we turn away from the gods that would be worshipped through the search for success and popularity. We turn away from the gods of materialism and intellectualism. We turn away from the gods of safism. That may be a new term for you. I encourage you to go look it up. It's an up and rising idol in our culture today. The worship of safety and comfort. We we turn away from these gods in order to worship the one true and living God. We don't just add Jesus to our pantheon of gods that we're already worshiping. That's such the temptation. I'll just add Jesus to all my worldly worship. I'll have my Jesus here on the side when things get really tough to run to him in those moments. But I'll continue to live my life seeking after the things of this world. The Bible reminds us that that kind of thinking is the kind of thinking that leads us straight to hell. That we must repent and turn away from those things in order that we can turn to Him. Turn away from what is false and dead in order that we might experience that which is true and living. Leon Morris said, indeed, in every age, it's a mark of the true Christian that he has turned from contemporary idols and they abound in our day. May we turn away from the idols to worship the one true and living God. And finally this morning, it's not just repentance, it's also faith. And it's the kind of faith described in verse 10. The kind of faith that waits for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Notice those three elements. It's the kind of faith that is waiting for. This word waiting means a longing expectation. It's a word that means a longing expectation that we are longing expectantly for the return of Christ. That's the kind of faith that he is calling them into. It's secondly, it's a faith that is grounded in his resurrection whom he raised from the dead that we understand that the resurrection is the very cornerstone the foundation of our faith as as paul writes in first corinthians 15 if christ has not been raised our faith is worthless we are wasting our time here this morning if the bones of Jesus Christ of Nazareth are rotting in a grave outside of Jerusalem this morning. But because Christ has been raised from the dead, that we have a living hope and we have a flourishing faith. And then we're also reminding ourselves that this Jesus who rose from the dead is the same Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And a great question for us to ask as we finish this morning is this. Whose wrath is it that's coming? We saw this weekend 
the wrath of what some would call Mother Nature striking the state of Texas through tornadoes. By the way, that wasn't Mother Nature, folks. That's the effects of sin and death in our world. And a preview of the wrath of God that's coming against this world that has utterly rebelled against Him. We look at the coronavirus. Some people say, well, is this the judgment of God? I will say at least this. It's a preview of the coming wrath. You want to see a larger preview of the coming wrath? Go read the book of Revelation and see how God is going to systematically dismantle everything that we are seeing and experiencing now in order that He might bring a new creation where none of the brokenness of sin and death continues. It's graphic. And it's utterly horrifying unless... Unless you know the king above all kings and you understand that to know him and be saved by the blood that he poured out at the cross means that you are rescued from the wrath that is coming. At the end of the day, folks, there are two types of people in this world. There are those that are going to face the wrath of God and there are those who have been delivered from the wrath of God. And the difference maker is not whether you've been a good person and paid your taxes and walked old ladies across the street and not cussed too much. That's not the difference maker, folks. The difference maker is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. And it's faith in Him that draws the line between those who remain under the wrath of God, who are condemned already, as John 3 reminds us, and those who have been delivered from the wrath of God through faith in Him. And so we pray, God, may this kind of repentance and faith abound among us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, our final scripture today. Reminds us since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul bookends the, this letter to the Thessalonians with these ideas of faith, hope, and love. Pleading with us that this would be our heart's cry for our church. And that we would ask God to do the kind of work that only He can do. What are you praying for for our church in these days that only God can do? That's what he's calling us to. As we come toward the end this morning, I'm going to invite Grant to come and play some music for us. But I want us, it would be wrong for us to talk about prayer this morning and not some, spend some time actually praying. And so I've given you on your outline a prayer list. And here's what I want to urge you to do. As the band begins to play, I want us to take a couple of minutes and I want us, maybe there's just something in particular on this prayer list this morning that just leaps out to you. 
Something that just really spoke to your heart this morning that you want to make that the matter of prayer for these minutes before we sing our way out this morning. And I, I want to urge us, let this not be a one and done kind of situation. If there is something that God has gripped your heart with this morning, you say, man, I've never prayed for that, but I, but I want to learn how to pray for that. Let's begin now. And let's ask God to convict our hearts and to lead us in passionate prayer that seeks his glory among the nations that begins right here in this place. And so I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And then I want to, I want to give us a minute or two while the band just plays quietly. Pick out something on this prayer list today and ask God to do what only God can do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Thank you for directing us in what it means for us to pray for the growth of our church. And Father, we do want to pray this morning that you would add to our number as you did for the early church. As it says, you added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And you added them not through programs and processes. You added them through repentance and faith. The hearing of your word that led people to turn from sin and to trust in the Savior. Lord, we pray that that would abound among us this morning. Father, I pray that as we turn our hearts to prayer, in the quietness of these minutes, Lord, would you drive us to our knees? Would you direct us to godly paths? Would you remind us of your holiness? And our need for more of you. And would you awaken us. To your good pleasing. And perfect will. We pray this in Jesus name. As we continue to pray.